I'd like you to imagine a situation that could potentially happen to you this week. Imagine you're sitting at Thanksgiving dinner with your family and a curious relative who is not a Christian asks you this question. They ask, what is salvation? When you talk about being saved, what is it that you mean? I had a really weird experience as a kid. My dad was trying to get me to share the gospel with people. So it's like this six-year-old. I went to my neighbor and asked him, have you ever been saved? And he was like, what are you asking? It's like, well, have you ever gotten saved before? It's like, well, my brother pulled me out when I was drowning one time when I was learning to swim. I think that's how a lot of people hear the terminology of salvation or being saved. But I wonder what picture you would come up with to help people understand the biblical concept of salvation. I know what I went on to say, and I wouldn't say it now. I wasn't aware of Romans 8 at the time. But what what picture would you give to describe what God does in saving his people? Well, in Romans 8, 12 through 17, Paul brings together two pictures of salvation that will help us out. He uses two pictures, one, the picture of redemption or release, and two, the picture of adoption. And in this sermon, I want to examine these two pictures, release, redemption, and adoption, and to consider how they might inform our understanding of salvation, and maybe even more importantly, how it might shape our experience of salvation. The first picture that Paul uses is redemption. We've become quite familiar with this picture of salvation throughout Romans. It's been central to Paul's description of salvation starting in chapter 1 all the way until the present. Of course, he's alluding to Israel's paradigmatic salvation event, their redemption from Egypt. But he returns to this over and over again, especially in Romans chapter 6. There he urged his readers to live in the freedom that they have in Christ, no longer captivated to sin. The newfound freedom that we have as we are now under the reign of grace means that we are no longer obligated to live according to the flesh. Now, we have to, again, ask, what does Paul mean by the flesh? This is one of those complicated, pesky terms, because Paul does not mean your physical body when he talks about the flesh. Instead, the flesh is a composite personification of three things, of the reign of the cosmic power of sin, of the in-Adam family traits and traditions, and our own internal disposition to sinful desire and action. So whenever you come across this term flesh, Paul isn't talking about a part inside of you, and he's not talking about your physical body. He's offering a composite personification of these three aspects of the sin problem that we've considered throughout Romans. What he's saying is that those who are in Christ are no longer obligated to live according to that composite figure, to that way of life. But he does more than simply telling them, or in really telling us about our freedom, he warns about the consequences if we live according to the flesh. 
If we live according to slavery to sin or to the old Adam way of life, if we live in that way, we are going to die. It ends in death. In contrast, however, to live according to the Spirit is to put to death what Paul calls the deeds of the body, charting a course to life. And here we can just understand this phrase, the deeds of the body, as all of the human sin patterns that Paul identifies in Romans 1 through 3. So in, these, in this verse, he's drawing on so much that he's already said, but to simplify, the flesh and the deeds of the body is a way of life that we need to die to because we're freed from it. If we live in that way, we will die. The influence of Romans on this guy, John Owen, is pretty obvious when he writes, be killing sin or, be, or sin will be killing you. That's Paul's point here. You've got to be killing your sin or sin will be killing you. Because for us, like for Cain, sin is crouching at the door, desiring to exercise dominion over us. And for that reason, we must rule over it. And the good news is that we can because we're no longer obligated to do sin's bidding. How does that strike you? Do you believe that? You're not obligated to obey the desire to sin that you have. This might seem unattainable, but it's not unattainable because Jesus makes it a reality. Because we can defeat sin in the wake of Christ's victory over sin. The seed of the woman, Jesus, has already crushed the head of the serpent. So we can too. And it's with this confidence that Paul writes in Romans 16, 20, that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So our freedom from obligation to sin entails the ability to defeat sin. It's with that confidence that we can affirm the non-obligation that Paul writes about in these verses in all of its dimensions. I mentioned the three, but I want to push into them further. We are not obligated to sin in its spiritual or cosmic dimension. That is, the reign of sin over us. So we're not obligated to live under the tyranny of the overlord sin, that master who pays the wages of death. This cosmic power of sin throughout has been compared to Pharaoh, who was the harsh taskmaster over Egypt. And just now, it's been compared to the serpent in the garden. Paul wants his readers to be convinced that the power of sin has no power over them. So whether sin issues harsh commands, like Pharaoh or whether sin issues deceptive contradictions to God's commands in the manner of the serpent, no Christian is obligated to obey. In other words, no external demand or internal desire to sin has authority over you. Do you believe that? Prior to your freedom from sin's authority, we were coerced to participate in sin, and what's worse, we did so willingly. But now, because of the work of the Spirit in our new identity in Christ, there's no obligation ever to sin. There's no obligation to fold in to external pressure or internal desire to sin. 
Both sources of temptation will ultimately lead to death, and both can be subverted through the enabling of the Holy Spirit. So let me put it very starkly. There is never a situation in which you must sin. There's no sin that you must ever commit. There's no temptation that you must yield to. So even as we affirm that no Christian will be perfect in this life, we must also affirm that there's no sin that we are obligated to commit in this life. For the Christian, there is no excuse that the devil made me do it when it comes to our sin. Okay? So when Paul says you're not obligated to sin, he's saying that sin has no power over you anymore. And... I think that's, that we rightly say Christians will sin, but we too quickly jump to that reality and use it as an excuse for giving in to sin. And we, we don't allow our theological imaginations to see the true freedom that we have as a result of Jesus' serpent-crushing endeavor. Okay? But the second dimension of non-obligation is the societal or cultural dimension. We are not obligated to participate in the sins of our society and our culture. Every society and every culture preserves practices that include sinful activity and that are therefore marked by death rather than righteousness in life. And even though we are enculturated, even though we're embedded in our cultures, we are not obligated to live out the sins of our culture and our society. It's true that every single society and every single culture has aspects that bear Adam-like family traits and that maintain Adam-like family traditions. And those traits and traditions are out of step with the new creational reality, the moral and the ethical life that we have in the spirit. So Christian, you must resist those family traits. You must resist the cultural and societal norms that are opposed to the norms of Christ. Now, often Christians feel coerced to participate in the sins of culture and society. There's societal pressure, real or imagined, to comply with those cultural norms. And sometimes that pressure comes with threats, threats of exclusion, of social ostracization, financial loss, and in some situations, even worse. So we need to recognize that in our resistance to society's sins, there might be pressure that makes it feel like we're obligated to comply with that way of life. But Christians are called to even embrace suffering in their resistance to sin. If we resist sin, in our culture and society, our lives will look distinct from our cultures in certain ways. Now, not all of culture and not all of society is fully sinful. There are good and honorable aspects of our society and culture, but where society and culture is sinful, we ought to live out a distinct kind of life. And that distinction will result in a measure of a lack of belonging. We won't fit in perfectly here. And that's okay. That lack of belonging is bearable. 
It's bearable because your Christian belonging is not a belonging to any particular culture or society or subculture or political party or organization. Your ultimate belonging is to Christ, and it's marked not by the social norms of our day, but our belonging is marked by faith and baptism and the Holy Spirit that that infiltrates the new covenant people of God with different cultural and societal norms. So it's those cultural and societal norms of Christ's kingdom that we're obligated to, not the cultural and societal norms of our day. I can't go through and list all of the potential cultural norms that are sinful that you might be inclined to capitulate to and that you might sense an obligation toward. But I think we all know that they're there. And when you feel pressure to adopt those values or practices that might be celebrated in our culture but are antithetical to God's kingdom, you must remember that you are under no obligation to do so. You don't belong there. So someone might tell you that to be a good American or to be a patriot, or to be on the right side of history, or to fill in the blank with whatever you want, to fit in at your company or your child's school or in your family. They, they might say that to belong there truly, you need to violate the commands of Jesus Christ. That's a lie. You're not obligated to do it, and you don't need to belong there. You have ultimate belonging and freedom in the society and kingdom of Jesus Christ. So in this second dimension, this social, societal, cultural dimension, we have no obligation to sin. But in the third dimension, there's a social or relational dimension in which we have no more obligation to sin. This dimension is similar to the societal, cultural one, but it's more personal, and it involves the relationships that most directly shape our ethical behavior and our deepest values and our most tightly held affections. It's our friends and our families and even our internal sense of self. It does include friends and our families, but it also includes that voice in your head that almost seems like a second person, that voice that sometimes urges you to live according to the desires of the flesh rather than to the commands of King Jesus. And it's in the context of certain family relationships and friendships and our wrong-headed self-talk that many Christians are pressured to adopt a manner of life that's contrary to the law of love and the moral norms of the kingdom of God. But our identification with Jesus, and as we'll examine later, our adoption into God's family involves a transfer of allegiance from all others, from family and friends and even our internal truest self to Jesus alone. It, it, it involves adopting the rules in the family customs of Christ in God's family even when those rules and customs and traditions butt up against your natural families or your longtime friend groups or even your internal, most authentic self's desires. The obligation to conform 
to the norms of the natural family has been replaced with an obligation to conform to the norms of God's family. The norms of your friend group have been replaced with the norms of the new covenant community bound together by the Holy Spirit. And the abnormalities of the internal fractured self are repaired through the progressive restoration and transformation of the Holy Spirit. Fundamental to these new norms is the law of love enlivened by the Spirit. What that means is that there may be family and friendship and personal practices that you can no longer participate in. I don't know what family customs you grew up with that are antithetical to Christ's kingdom. But most of us experience broken families and families tainted by sin, and we, as a family member, sinned as well, but we're called now to a different family. I don't know what kind of sins that you are particularly tempted to when you hang out with that group of friends, but your long-term friendship with them does not obligate you to sin in those same ways any longer. And I don't know what kind of sinful desires repeatedly pop up in your inner self. But to be your authentic self as a Christian is not to entertain those desires, but instead to kill them and give yourself over to what you know Christ desires for you. That can lead to some awkward conversation with family and with long-held friend groups and even with that dialogue in your head. That's why we ought to remember that fundamental to the new creational reality and the norms of the kingdom of God is the norm of love, the obligation to love. This is what Paul talks about later in Romans 13, 8 through 10, when he says, owe no one anything but love. Because even as we no longer participate in the old ways of life connected to our natural family or our old friend groups, we need to relate to them in love. This point is especially relevant as many of you will be gathering with family and friends over the Thanksgiving holiday who have not given their allegiance to King Jesus. Now that you're a Christian, as you relate to them and you avoid participating in their sinful manners of life, you don't relate to them with self-righteousness and you don't relate to them with disinterest. You relate to them with warmth and affection even as you might be called on to refuse to participate in some of the things that they're going to participate in. You must not engage with them in old creational ways of living. Instead, you engage as a new creature characterized now by love. Our release from obligation to all three of these dimensions must be firmly held because as we navigate life, all of three of these dimensions are happy to try to convince us that we are obligated to live in the same way again, that we are obligated to live according to the flesh. But Paul makes it clear that that's just not true. We're new people with a new way of life. So that's the first picture of our salvation. It's release, redemption, and it gives way now to the second picture of salvation, our adoption. Paul makes a logical connection between our release from obligations to the composite character that he calls the flesh 
and the new picture of salvation, our adoption into God's family. The fundamental reason we're no longer obligated to the flesh is because we're now part of a new family. We're led by the Spirit to become sons of God. And as God's sons, Paul goes on, we have not received a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, fear of the old taskmaster of sin, but instead we've received the spirit of adoption to sonship. In other words, the Holy Spirit marks us off as God's children, as people enlivened by the Holy Spirit cry now, Abba, Father. I want to go on a brief excursus here as I explain the meaning of this term, Abba. The word Abba is an Aramaic word. Aramaic is kind of like Hebrew, but pretty different if you're trying to learn both of them. It's an Aramaic, Aramaic word for father, and it only occurs three times in the entire Bible. It occurs in this text. It occurs in a very similar passage in Galatians 4, 6. And then it occurs one more time in Mark 14, 36, when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane right before he's crucified, and he cries out in prayer and, and cries out to his Abba, Father. This term certainly has some measure of personal intimacy, but it's worth noting that it would be inappropriate to refer to God as your daddy. Abba is not baby talk that corresponds to dada or papa or daddy. Hopefully, you're not inclined to talk that way, but I think I've heard it a lot, and it's somewhat cringy. As one theologian puts it really simply, Abba isn't daddy. We don't domesticate God in that way. Rather, it's a term that adult children used, and it was used even as a respectful title for scholars, similar to the term rabbi. So, in agreement with this random guy I found on the internet, I wish to say, stop saying daddy God. It's uncomfortable. While at the same time encouraging the sense that God is a warm and loving father. But let's not confuse the two. Let's not domesticate God. He is still the judge of the universe, even as we've been welcomed into his family and can cry out to him as our Lord did in the face of his crucifixion, Abba, Father. The point is that every Christian has a new relationship with God, such that the judge is now also our Father such that our release from captivity to sin is now met with reception by the fatherly love of God. He didn't release us from sin's captivity without a restoration plan, or we would still be under judgment. Instead, he released us from sin, and he invited us into his own family. In this picture, we are all the prodigal who have violated the grace of our Father, but who are welcomed back not with judgment, but with open arms of love. So we come under God's reign, not as his captured enemies who have defected from the army of sin, but as his beloved children. Yet, this picture is intensified because as we come under God's fatherly care, we come not as his redheaded stepchildren or um, abused orphans or despised 
offspring. Rather, we come under his fatherly care as his full children who have a full inheritance. We come as heirs. We come into God's family, promised a kind of Trinitarian blessing as the Holy Spirit agrees with our adoptive status, testifying and affirming to us that we are indeed God's children. We're fully integrated into his family. We're included right alongside Jesus Christ so that we might become co-heirs of God with Christ, our older brother. In this adoption, Jesus becomes your brother. You become an heir of God. You're written into his will. You become a co-heir with Christ. That's remarkable. We need to think carefully about the implications of our adoption to sonship. There is one that is really obvious, and then two that take a little bit of reflection. The first implication of our adoption into God's family is that we have become deeply loved children of God. God deeply loves you. This was a large burden of the sermon last week, so I don't want to spend too much more time commenting on it, even though this is a reality that we must grasp. Go back and revisit that sermon from last week. God loves his children. Christians share in this deep, indissoluble, Trinitarian love of God. There is no fear, only peace with God. And even though this analogy of our salvation as adoption into God's family could break down for you because maybe you came from a really broken family, And while we want to recognize that all human families are tainted by sin, so every single analogy will break down, this family is the best of family. It is not tainted by any of the brokenness or the hardship that your family was tainted by. All of the weaknesses and faults associated with human family belonging and human family fatherly care are gone when it comes to God's family and God's fatherly care. God is a father without fault. And Jesus is a family member without failure. As a family member of God, you are deeply loved. Christians have long appreciated this picture of salvation as adoption because it gives us a metaphor for understanding our salvation and our new relationship with God, our Father. But it also allows every single person who has a deeply broken family relationship or no family at all to find real and meaningful family belonging with God's people. It's also proved inspirational for Christians who uniquely imitate God's fatherly adoptive love by pursuing adoption themselves. Whether it's part of a desire to grow a family or in a response to a pressing need, Christians can demonstrate a family resemblance with God by adopting a child. Perhaps something, that's something that you might want to consider as a voluntaristic way to walk deeper into the adoptive fatherly love of God. Of course, adopting a child is not required of Christians, but I would suggest 
that those parents who have adopted a child can relate to God's fatherly adopting love in a way that the rest of us cannot. So perhaps you want to think about that. Implication number two. Christians need to think about their salvation as a covenantal relationship and not as a contractual reward. Paul's picture of salvation as adoption helps answer questions about whether or not a person can go from being saved to no longer being saved. These questions are also often framed as a question like this, can I lose my salvation? Well, Paul intends for his readers to understand that salvation is not a contractual reward that can be gained or lost, but a covenantal family reality in which you actually participate in a relationship with God in Christ through the Holy Spirit. This relational and covenantal reality, um, it, it shows us that our salvation is deeply relational. And that should frame the way you think about your salvation. And I would propose that if you can grab onto this picture of your salvation, eventually the question, can I lose my salvation, will no longer make any sense to you at all. Because your salvation will be thought of so deeply relationally instead of contractually that you will understand it can never be lost. Because it was never something that you gained to begin with. It was a relationship that was granted to you by the deep and abiding love of God. When you perceive of your salvation this way, you need to give up on thinking about your salvation as if it's a boarding pass on a flight or a hotel reservation. Because if you think about it that way, if you think about your salvation as a ticket onto the airplane or reservation to a hotel, you might get anxious and stressed out that you might miss out on your future flight to heaven or your reservation in the mansions of glory might be given to someone else. When you perceive of your salvation in that way, fears about losing salvation will probably be natural because they'll cloud your ability to perceive salvation in the relational terms that Paul offers it to us here. So as you move forward, Try to imagine the joy of your salvation, something as less, less as something that you just received or gained, and more of something that you entered into as an adopted child of God, as a covenantal relationship with Him. Then there's a third implication. Christians receive in their family belonging a vocational calling as members of God's family. Now, I will admit that this implication is going to take some concentrated working out. So you're going to need to track a little more carefully with me. And as we go, I'm going to put some verses on the screen that will help you track with where I'm going. But our adoption to sonship is a call to a vocation to become a son of God. Now, son of God here is a technical term that has a lot of history in Israel's scripture, and it's a title that relates to rulership and dominion. So let's begin our journey. 
Paul's reference to those who are in Christ as the sons of God links back to the opening statements in Romans 1-3, where Paul describes Jesus the Messiah as appointed to be the powerful Son of God, or appointed to be the Son of God in power, depending on the translation you're using. The phrase Son of God is a title for a king. Ancient kings were described as the sons of the God. So for someone to be called a son of God is for them to be identified as a king or a ruler. So Paul's statement in Romans 1.3 is a statement about Jesus' messianic identity. He is God's anointed king. Now what is true about Jesus ultimately is what was true about humanity originally at their creation. When we examine the Bible as a whole, we realize that Adam is depicted as God's son, and he was given a vocation to be a representative ruler on earth, exercising dominion in the garden on God's behalf. He was to work the garden. It was a vocation that was given to him. Tragically, he failed in that vocation, but in the progress of redemptive history, Israel, the nation, was then appointed to be God's firstborn son, the corporate son of God, carrying on that vocation of royal sonship, a vocation outlined in their identity as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This corporate son of God would then be represented by another son of God, their king, David, along with his successors, eventuating in Jesus, the greater son of David, and the final Son of God. Do you see how this vocation, Son of God, appears throughout Scripture? That's what's being restored when we're being adopted to God's sonship. Now, in Jesus' role as the Son of God, the perfect King, He works to restore all of humanity to become sons of God again, so that they can exercise that original humanity, dominion over the earth, as we're drawn into God's family. As we're drawn into God's family, we become co-heirs of Jesus, the ultimate Son of God, as we too are identified as Son of God, sons of God. But we've got to ask then, well, what is it that the co-heirs of Christ inherit? If we're an heir of Christ, what is it that we are inheriting? I want to propose that what you are inheriting as part of your salvation and as part of God's redemptive purposes for the sons of God is the entire earth. It's the earth, not just the Garden of Eden, not just the promised land that the previous sons of God were to exercise dominion over, but the full extent of what both of those small geographic locations were always intended to expand to include, which is the new creation. And in fact, this is exactly what Abraham expected. He expected that he and his descendants would inherit the world. And now, as the faith descendants of Abraham, and as siblings of the Messiah, as heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, we who are already sons of God and daughters too, are being folded into the messianic reign of Jesus and are being called into the vocation of the new humanity to represent God on earth and to bring about flourishing on this planet. We are called to represent God's 
messianic reign wherever our feet are planted, integrating the values of the new creation into this present creation reality. We'll consider this more next week, but the reason that all of creation is presently groaning under the curse is because the full revelation of the sons of God has not yet appeared. That is to say, the full vocation of the new humanity is not yet being worked out, but it's being started. When the full revelation of the sons of God comes at the resurrection, creation will no longer grow. Following suffering comes resurrection, comes glorification with Christ, as Paul comments in Romans 8, 17. And that glorification is the future participation in the glory of God that Paul wrote about in Romans 5, 2. What's more, and here's the final piece of that thread, this future glory is a restoration of the original glory granted to humanity at creation. As described in that poetic commentary on creation in Psalm 8, where humans are crowned with glory and honor. Do you hear that? Crowned with glory and honor. That's the vocation of rulership. You were made ruler over the works of God's hands. Our being folded into Christ as his co-heirs and our reception of the vocational royal sonship of God is a crowning with glory and honor. And that crowning with glory and honor will come to its fullness at the future resurrection, at that great coronation ceremony yet to come, described in Romans 8, 18 through 21, that we'll consider next week. But right now, in the present, I want to suggest that there is a spiritual resurrection and new life that every in Christ person has experienced through the Holy Spirit. And because of this partial glory that we're already experiencing, every in Christ person is called up to take that original vocation of cultivating and guarding God's creation until its final renewal at the return of King Jesus when we will be raised to life forevermore. As Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, although the final resurrection is yet to come, we should not stand by in idleness, thinking that because all things will eventually be set right, that there's no work to do now. Rather, the opposite is the case. Because things are going to be set right, we ought to get busy about setting things right in the present. We are to prepare the way of the Lord, getting busy about new creational and kingdom work, knowing that our labor is not in vain in him. Whatever inbreaking of the kingdom of God that we bring about in our cultivation of the earth and in our protection of it will be preserved and increased at the return of Christ. What does that mean more specifically? It means that none of our work, none of our service to others, None of our medical advances, our product designs, our parenting, our garbage cleanup, our yard work, our education, none of it will be wasted. It will not be in vain, but instead it will bring in new creational realities into this present old creation. And at the return of Christ, it will be transposed into an even more glorious form. I'll leave the rest of this to Josh to talk about in his Bible class on work and vocation. But whatever job you have, if you 
participate in that employment as a new creature in Christ, the work that you're doing is not wasted. Your labor is not in vain because it's being carried out as part of the family of God. And that family belonging includes a vocation of cultivating and guarding God's good creation through our engagement with the earth. This happens in terms of our farming, in terms of production, in terms of culture and society, in moral and medical and scientific and economic advances, in whatever work we do to bring about flourishing in society. What I'm trying to say here is if you belong to God's family, you've taken on a vocation that brings deep meaning to every task that you take on. So in this picture, where we are adopted as sons of God. Remember, this is a title of rulership. Those who represent God on earth. In that vocation and in that family identity, we understand that being a Christian and proclaiming the gospel is not about escaping this world, but about making this world a better place. To be a Christian then, is not to proclaim a gospel that makes people less interested in our society, but it's proclaiming a gospel that folds people into the renewal of the world through the embodiment of King Jesus' kingdom values. That makes this life all the more meaningful. So just as we already are new create creatures, and as the old is passing away, so too are we to participate in the making new of creation and of all things in cooperation with Christ through the enablement of the Holy Spirit to the glory of God, our adoptive Father. I'd like to conclude then by drawing attention to the final phrase in Romans 8:17, because even as we carry out this vocation of renewal and restoration and new creation, we do so with suffering. As co-heirs of Christ, it is such that we must suffer with him so that we may be glorified with him. Just as our present labors as the co-heirs of Christ will not be wasted, so too will our suffering not be wasted. Rather, our suffering is characteristic of the path to glory. It's non-negotiable. It's going to happen. But our suffering is not depressive because it will lead to glory and it will ultimately lead to glory because it, our suffering is superintended by our, our adoptive heavenly father. I'd like to draw one connection to the New Testament and one to the old that will leave us not on a note of sadness as we think about our suffering, but on a note of glory. In Romans 8, 17, Paul describes the adopted sons and daughters of God as crying out, Abba, Father. That's not something that goes on a Hallmark card. It's not something cute. We cry out, not because things are going well, but because of our suffering. Like our Lord Jesus, who cried out in the Garden of Gethsemane, Abba, Father like our Lord Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, who on the cross cried out to his Father, using that same verb in Matthew 27, 15, or 50. We are then linked to an Old Testament context, to God's firstborn son, Israel, who in Exodus 5, 8, cried out during their enslavement to Pharaoh 
in Egypt. So how does the father cry out when his sons, or how does the father respond when his sons cry out, Abba, Father? What does the father do when he hears his children crying out in their suffering? He hears and he redeems from slavery. He hears and he raises from the dead and rewards with an eternal crown of glory and honor. As part of our new family belonging, we will face suffering on the road to glory. And when we cry out to our Father, we do so knowing the characteristic response recorded in Exodus 2, 24 and 25, a response that would bear memorizing as you cry out in your suffering that God hears, that God remembers his covenant, that God sees, that God knows, and then triumphantly and gloriously and redemptively, God acts. So let's cry out together to that Father. Father, we cry out to you as your children in our suffering, in our hardship, and in our joys, asking for you to bring about the full revelation of the sons of God, the full new renewal of this created world, the full restoration to glory that we've read about for so long in Romans. Would you begin that restoration work in and through us at Resurrection Church, and would you bring it to completion soon in the return of our Savior, your Son, Jesus, and in the resurrection to new life forevermore. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.